This morning, would you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3? We'll be looking at verses 18 through 22. This is a difficult passage. Some have said that this is the most difficult paragraph in the New Testament to interpret according to its original intent. So we're going to have fun this morning. I would also say this. This has been a paragraph that has been pounding in my heart and in my head this week. Um, And so in that way, I've been praying that the Lord would do the same in us. Challenge us, encourage us, mold us, continue to build us up as living stones, as C.H. Spurgeon said, who are sealed together by the mortar of Christ's blood. May he do that in us this morning. I'm going to begin with a question this morning. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? For all of you Reformation buffs, you'll recognize that as the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the way that Westminster answers that question is this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So if you're thinking about the apex of creation seen in humanity, that apex of humanity made in the image of God over all of creation, the apex of the apex, the tip of the mountain, The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The reason I open with that is that I believe that the Apostle Peter is encouraging the people to think much the same way. And this is not in the paragraph that I'm preaching this morning. But listen to this in 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 9. He writes this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And here comes the apex. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, again, a people for his own possession. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So considering the people of God being this chosen people, this royal priesthood, and their purpose is specific. It is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our end, our chief end, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And Peter says, also known as 
proclaiming the excellencies of God because he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He goes on in verses 11 and 12 to talk about the means and the hope for this end. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, there's that word again, sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So he brings up, if you're going to proclaim the excellencies of him, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against you. That's the negative. On the positive side, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Those are the means for proclaiming the excellencies. Abstain from the passions of the flesh and then conduct yourselves among the Gentiles in an honorable way, doing good deeds with the hope that they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the hope that by God's grace, through God's people, he will glorify himself through gathering in more of his people. And that we have the opportunity to engage him in that work. After all, we are a people for his own possession. I would commend a book to you this morning, Evangelism as Exiles by Elliot Clark. It is a brief exposition and application of 1 Peter. Our intent on preaching through 1 Peter is not that we cover every single little tidbit of everything that could be taken out of this letter. This would be great for your own use. The ebook is actually free on TGC currently. But his subtitle is this, Life on Mission as Strangers in Our Own Land. And that is what I have titled the sermon this morning. Life on Mission as Strangers in Our Own Land. Do you feel that discomfort growing? Do you feel more and more like a stranger where God has you? Well, then let me ask you this question. Is your life on that mission to glorify God through proclaiming his excellencies? Is my life on that mission? That's why this was pounding my head and my heart this week, is because it is a glorious mission, and I don't always see it as glorious. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we ask that you would capture our hearts with the beauty of Christ. Fill us with your spirit. Move our hearts to see your glory and to move us on to mission. To proclaim your excellencies, God. Would you use your word to accomplish that purpose in us this morning, I pray. Amen. So, I hope you're in 1 Peter 3 by now. Before I read these five verses, I want you to have kind of your, your glasses on to see 
something specific here. There are going to be three subjects in these five verses. Three subjects who are on mission as strangers in their own lands. Those three subjects are Christ, Noah, and you. All right? Christ, Noah, and you are the three subjects who Peter is writing about here. As we read, keep in mind what these three subjects have in common. Doing good, suffering for doing good, and being vindicated for doing good. Uh, Vindicated, we don't use that word very often. What I mean by vindicated is this. There is a sense of rightness and justice and innocence that is maintained and then ultimately realized. So you might be in court proclaiming your innocence. Your vindication comes when you've gone through the process and the court says you're not guilty or you don't have to pay that fine. You are vindicated. So these three subjects, doing good, suffering for doing good, and being vindicated for doing good. Let's read 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's start with the first subject, the first person, Christ. Let's consider, did Christ do good? You can say, yes, Christ did good. Christ lived the perfect life that we could not lead for its entirety. Tempted in every way as we are, yet did not sin. Christ did good. And that is a moral good. He abstained from the passions of the flesh. But he also did good, and the people around him saw. The people around him wondered, how does he do this? Why does he do this? The first chapter of Mark I was reading yesterday, and a paralytic, this is the first chapter in Mark, a paralytic comes to him and says, listen, I, the background information was he had just cast out a demon in the synagogue. And the paralytic comes up to him and says, I know that you can heal me. Jesus says, you're healed. He did good. Did he suffer for doing good? Well, yes, definitely. His last days, he specifically suffered for doing good. 
doing the greatest good. What is this greatest good? When we look back here at the text, Peter says, for Christ also suffered, which could also be translated as died. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is the theological term, substitutionary atonement. It means that God in his gracious providence supplied a sacrifice that was perfect. That sacrifice being Jesus. To be sacrificed for the sake of people who aren't just like sort of uh-uh. No, they're unrighteous. We are unrighteous. The sin, the depravity that we are born into, we rebel against God and we enjoy it. That is the natural heartbeat of our flesh. The passions, the passions of our flesh desire nothing else but ourself. And so Christ, after having lived 30 to 33 years doing good, comes to his final weeks. And the tension ramps up, and he goes ultimately to the cross, and he dies once for sins. He's not a sacrifice that had to be continually offered over and over again, as was the Jewish sacrificial system in the Old Testament. He suffered once for all. Substitutionary atonement is a once-for-all act. Christ stepped in as our substitute so that we could be forgiven. With the result that he might bring us to God. That's the atonement. That those who were separated from him by our own guilt, those who had condemnation on our shoulders, rightly so. Those who could enter, not enter the courtroom of God saying, listen, I maintain my innocence. No, only Jesus could enter the courtroom of his father and say, I maintain my innocence. Yet he gave up that innocence so that our guilt could become innocence. This is the great exchange. Christ took our unrighteousness and we received his righteousness, so that when God looks on us, he sees Christ's perfection. Do you need to hear that this morning? That you can be seen as perfect in God's eyes. How did he do this? By being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Here we come to one of our first textual, textual questions, hard to interpret. What does he mean? What does Peter mean by being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit? Again, I'll refer, if you want, if you want to dive into this and work your way through all the different possibilities, you can. What I would say is this. When you look at the different possibilities, there are really only a couple for the different questions we're going to encounter in this text. And those couple, they don't actually raise up incredible points within the text. 
there's room for disagreement, for debate, for study. What I'm going to do this morning is not present you all the different options, but present you the option that I think is best. But I think you'll see that you don't have to depend on these options in order to say, what does this text fully mean? What does it mean here by being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit? Well, very simply this. Being put to death in the flesh means that Jesus died. If you look over to chapter 4, verse 6 of 1 Peter, Peter writes, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are. Peter is saying this, that physical death is a kind of judgment. It is a judgment on our bodies. It is a judgment on our flesh. Sin entered the world, sorry, death entered the world through sin, through Adam, and all of us are the unfortunate beneficiaries. It was his physical death, Jesus' physical death, but made alive in the Spirit. This means that Jesus was brought back to life. He did not raise himself. Jesus was brought back to life by the Holy Spirit. We see this in Romans chapter 8. We see an allusion to it in Romans chapter 1. The fact that it is the Spirit, actually Paul says in Romans chapter 8, it's the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead that indwells every Christian. That's resurrection power living in us. Praise God. So Jesus actually died, and then he actually was made alive in the Spirit. Verse 19 in which Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. All right, this gets a little bit more shadowy here. What Peter is looking at here is Christ's vindication through his resurrection. He was made alive in the spirit, and then it seems sometime after his resurrection, perhaps at his ascension... Something happened in the spiritual world that Peter is pointing to here. Christ did good, suffered for doing good, and now here is vindicated, exonerated, acquitted for the good that he did even at the cross. Because what happens here is Christ proclaims. That's my second question. What did Christ proclaim? He proclaimed, he announced, he preached his victorious vindication through his death and resurrection. See, if someone was truly guilty, if Christ had been guilty, he would not have been risen from the dead. But because Christ was not guilty, he bore the death you and I should have died, he was raised. That's vindication, that's exoneration, that's Jesus going free. So, next question. Who are these spirits in prison? Well, the spirits in prison seem to be supernatural beings. The fallen angels who were disobedient and imprisoned. Continue in the text here. Proclaim to the spirits in prison because they did not, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. 
Why do we think that these are spirits in prison? Well, this word for spirit in the New Testament is pretty much always used for supernatural beings. Angels. In fact, the Jewish um, teachers believe that the fall of the angels happened in Genesis 6. I'm going to flip back there real quick. You could just listen. In Genesis 6, listen to this. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw, the sons of God, a.k.a. angels, saw that the sons of man were attractive. So angels saw women, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. I mean, this is outside of our box. What seems to be happening here in Genesis 6 is that angels saw human women and came down and had sex with them. And that those women then bore children who were angelic and human. This is outside of our box. This is what? And so we'll just kind of leave it there. Okay? Because this is just what it was. But I want you to understand here, the reality is, such was the evil of this act that it prompted God to say, I'm putting an end to it. So when it talks about here in 1 Peter, the spirits in prison, he's talking about these fallen angels. If you look down just a few verses later, verse 22, Jesus talks about, or Peter talks about Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Angels, authorities, and powers, that's all supernatural being, spiritual world language. Peter is putting us into the spiritual stadium and seeing what God does there and here announcing at the end of this passage that Jesus is victorious, which is what Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison, likely during his ascension. Let me just point you to one other place. If you flip over to 2 Peter chapter 2, Verse 4, Peter says, writes this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Peter's not saying this is, this is Christian mythology. He's saying this is what really happened. And those fallen angels are imprisoned. They are under God's control. He committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So you have here 
Peter, again mentioning Noah, again mentioning that time past, pre-flood, when he's talking about this severe disobedience. But this also brings us to Noah. So here we've seen Christ did good, did good and suffered for it, but ultimately vindicated. And now we come to Noah. Noah doing good as a stranger in his own land. Again, going back to 1 Peter 3, verse 20. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. There was disobedience around Noah. Because not only was there this reality of the intermixing between the, the supernatural and the natural, but in Genesis 6 it continues, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We see Noah's exile status confirmed here. Exile because he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, even in his own land. He was increasingly a stranger. Increasingly a stranger in this land of disobedience, even as God was patient. The wickedness of man, the wickedness of the angels, caused God to grieve. And he committed himself to cleanse the earth. Yet Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9 of chapter 6 in Genesis says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What I don't want us to get is that Noah was some sort of pre-Christ. That he was walking around and found favor with God because he was perfect. There's nothing here that should imply that. Noah was a man, a human like us. But by God's grace, he found favor. And then he walked in that favor. He walked righteously. The only other man described in the Old Testament in this way is Moses himself. And we know through much more extensive accounts that Moses was not a perfect man either. But what happened during these years while the ark was prepared? Well, how long did that take? Well, some people think that when it talks about 120 years in Genesis 6, that that's actually God saying, it's going to be 120 years until the judgment comes. That's when I'm going to remove my spirit from the earth and judgment will come. In the chronology of Genesis, it looks like it was maybe 80 to 120 years. A long time to build a vessel as large as the ark. 
a huge boat in the middle of the desert, not close to any sea. And so Noah, doing good, begins to obey God. He has heard God's instruction, build the ark. I'm going to cleanse the earth. And he begins to build the ark. But you may remember when I read from 1 Peter or 2 Peter 2.5 that Peter calls Noah a herald of righteousness, a preacher of righteousness. Imagine it. Noah and his sons start building the ark. And his neighbors come around. You're gathering a lot of wood, guys. What's going on? We're building an ark. What is an ark? A big boat. Like a huge boat. Guys, you could have picked a better place to start. If you wanted a boat, move it closer to the water. Start closer to the water so you don't have to move it closer to the water. No, but God said we should start building it and build it here. And it should be large enough for God to gather all of the animals that he's going to save to be able to reproduce after the flood. The what? He says there's a flood coming. And that flood is going to cover the earth. Uh, so what about us, Noah? Seems kind of like a conspiracy you got going on here, you and God against us. What about us and your crazy conspiracy theory? Well, um, the ark's available. The ark's available? Why would we get on that crazy ship with you? There's no way that the flood, any kind of flood, would cover the earth. No way. Will not happen. You're crazy. Your wife is crazy. Your sons are crazy. Their wives are crazy. And now imagine that, that conversation happens over and over again as Noah proclaims the judgment that is coming and the salvation that could be found in the ark for 80, 90, 100, 110, 120 years. And the ark grows larger and larger and larger. Hebrews 11:7 says this, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear. Takes us back to last Sunday's sermon. In reverent fear, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this act, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith.
Noah did good, but that good didn't feel real good, I'm sure. Long-suffering, enduring, persevering, hard labor as he's reviled by his neighbors and wondering, will God keep his promise? Noah suffered for doing good. Not only was he reviled, Genesis 7.1 says that he, God told him, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Seven days, he said, seven days, the water's going to start. Genesis 7.16, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Can you imagine what that was like? The animals have started to come. Your neighbors are starting to wonder. God says it's time. You and your family are going in. And so you go in. If you've walked by faith so far, and you continue to walk in faith, and you get into the ark, and then God shuts them in, and then they wait. They wait for seven days. They wait as their neighbors now wonder where they are. Maybe they saw them go in. They wait as their neighbors think, he said something about this, and we've kind of just like let it pass, because that was just crazy Noah. We talked about it maybe 80 years ago, but we haven't really bothered him about it in quite some time. And now he's in there, all eight of them. And all those animals came, just like he said they would. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, and then the clouds gather, day seven. The rain begins to fall. The Lord saved them by shutting the doors. And as Peter says, he brought the eight safely through water. What a vindication. What a realization that what you had always maintained was true was actually true. And that that truth was the judgment of all of your friends and neighbors and family other than the eight of you. Noah suffered for doing good. And as the water rose and it rose high enough, all the springs opened up and it lifted the ark off of the ground and it rained 40 days and 40 nights and then it took quite a bit longer for the rain or for the water to go down. Genesis 8.1 says, God remembered Noah and a wind blew over the earth. And eventually the, the water went down and God made a covenant with Noah. You can read it for yourself. It's a new creation account, a sort of resurrection. 
Noah was vindicated for doing good. He was right, and God saved him and his family through the waters of judgment. Jesus, Noah, you, as Peter writes, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Howard Marshall encourages his readers to consider the parallels that Peter's putting out here. The aid in the ark correspond to Christians. The water of the flood corresponds to the waters of baptism. The escape from drowning corresponds to spiritual salvation of believers. Noah and the flood is an Old Testament account of a saving event now repeated in a new way for Christians. But it still comes back to this now next question, tough to interpret. He says baptism now saves you? Well, listen here. Peter just said in verse 18 that it was actually Christ's death and his resurrection that saves us. Substitutionary atonement allows our debt to be given to Jesus so we could receive his righteousness. For someone like Peter, who preached in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when the people are cut to the heart and they say, what must we do to respond to Christ? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's one beautiful package of regeneration, new life for the person who has up to that point been drowning in their own sin. And so for Peter, there's no distinction between conversion, between faith and baptism. There's no distinction between faith and baptism and receiving the Holy Spirit. It's one beautiful gift. So Peter wouldn't even really ask that question here. But he would say this, when you're baptized, that's your demonstration that says, yes, I understand, I need to be forgiven. I need a good conscience. Cleanse me, please, Jesus. The you that Peter is writing to, they have been baptized. He takes it as certain that many of those who are hearing this letter read to him are believers. They're Christians. They are elect exiles. They have been born again. They are the people for God's own possession. And so he's saying, you need to be doing good. This is repeated over and over and over again in 1 Peter. You've been given the grace by your righteous king to be made righteous. So now do good things righteously. And this pledge at baptism is you saying, I not only need forgiveness, I cry out and I pledge myself, I covenant myself to God saying, make my life agree with my profession. May my daily activity, 
May my daily decisions, may my motivations, my affections, my thoughts, how I use my time, every single itsy-bitsy part of me, God, it belongs to you. So give me a good conscience. May my life agree with the righteousness that I believe you have given me. So Peter's encouraging them to do good. He's been talking a whole lot about suffering, as you know, if you've been listening to the sermons, over and over again talking about suffering through in this letter. It is what they are experiencing. And then he talks about vindication. Because he says this, the appeal to God for a good conscience isn't based on their own good, but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Christ has risen, they have now risen. Romans 8, the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead now lives in you as well. You are now raised with Christ. Vindication, exoneration, innocence, declared and that must be believed. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God right now with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. At his ascension, all authority was shown to be his. Therefore, you do not fear anything, even if you can't see it. Even if you feel like, man, the temptation is hard today. The darkness of my heart is intense today. Even if you feel it's a spiritual battle that is waging war against my soul today, he is saying Jesus is greater. He has already been made king and sovereign over every single power in the strata of creation. So don't fear. Instead, behold your king and obey him. i got to make this turn here now because we can't just talk about them. We've got to talk about us. Is Peter using these as only encouragement to the suffering? I doubt it. I want to come back to the opening question not from Westminster that I asked, but this. Is your life on the mission to proclaim the excellencies of God? Is my life on that mission, that glorious mission? And if we're honest, none of us can say 100% of the time it is because we're sinners. But God says there's grace and I want to use my word to call you back into mission. See, sometimes when we're exiles, you would think that an exile would be like always seeking their homeland. But an exile doesn't always seek their homeland. An exile can become easily comfortable. Those um, Mennonite missionaries that were kidnapped in Haiti, that was what one of their leaders actually said. We were in exile, and we became complacent. We just didn't think there was any way for us to get out. And so we didn't try to get out. And we just kind of 
let day go on after day went on. Until one day when God put in his mind, I want you to go and search over there. And he found a way out, and that's how they escaped. For us who are people in exile, I want you to consider a couple of things. Christ is meant to be our example. Peter says that as much in chapter 2. Verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Christ is meant to be our example. So we have this. Christ is our king, he's our savior, and we're subject to him. So as you consider how to be a good news person to other people, you consider the glorious cause of the call to evangelism, to being gospel people, to people who don't know the gospel. Consider, God, if I'm not living with you as my king, correct me. But on the other side of that, he's saying here, Christ is our example. Christ, our righteous substitute, who did what he did to bring us to God, use us as righteous people for the unrighteous. Mentioned substitutionary atonement. Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. I think that Peter may be making a connection here and saying, I want you to be substitutionary evangelists. Hear me out on this. We are unrighteous on our own, but made righteous and brought to God. If death was the only limit to Christ's atonement, and he went all the way through with this, any of our substitutionary sacrifice for the sake of bringing others to God is lesser. It was for our sakes that Christ suffered. And now we're called to do good and perhaps suffer for the sake of others to glorify him. Okay. Look in your text. Verse 8 of chapter 3. Because as I'm studying this and seeing these three subjects, Christ, Noah, and you, what I'm thinking these three things are, they are illustrations that Peter was using not to be standing on their own, but to show what he had just told them to do. So I want you to consider this. As a substitutionary evangelist, someone who substitutes and sacrifices himself or herself for someone else, read this text with me in mind, or with, with that in mind. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. He's saying, let yourselves be put down. Be humble. And he's saying this, first of all, specifically in chapter 8, in the community of faith with one another. Then verse 9, he's talking about going outside. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. 
For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Again, here he's talking about, we all have mouths to use. Don't use those mouths to talk about people. Use those mouths to bless people and to pray for people. He's building a construct for what it looks like to live as an exile in your own land. Love your church and honor everyone. Honor everyone by blessing them. An admission to make. You know, CPS and CTU had something going, right, a couple of weeks ago. And idle chatter often came out of my mouth. This is how I think it should go, or how could they make these decisions, or there's just there's so much foolishness going on. And you might say, well, all that is true. Maybe. But then God caught me on something when one of my kids said that the son of one of the CTU leaders is in their Spanish class at Sen. And all of a sudden, that became very personal and very real. Because what I'm saying, in the freedom of my own house, I shouldn't actually be free to say. Because... Christ calls me to bless and not revile. Even when the, the, the vice of living in exile begins to squeeze, what should come out of us? Blessing and not cursing. Pray for those who persecute you. Not that we were being persecuted, but that's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. So I have to look at this verse and say very clearly, God in Psalm 34 says, do not use your mouths for evil. Don't catch yourself reviling other people. Instead, bless them and more specifically, pray for them. So when I hear about this young kid over at Sen, I'm starting to pray now for him and for his family. Verse 13 now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope, is in, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Let me finish by saying this. How are you doing good? How might the Holy Spirit, might, how might the Holy Spirit want to reorient your attitude and your use of time, your use of resources, your use of your mouth, 
your love for one another, to reorient yourself with the priority of exclaiming, proclaiming the excellencies of God through the good that you seek zealously, verse 13, to do. And as you do that, there might be times when you catch flack for that. There might be times when you say, you know what? I stood up for what's right and I got reviled. Well, the argument that Peter is making here is that that's God's will. And it's not just God's will to sanctify you. It's God's will that that speed bump that you are in somebody else's understanding of life, they can't quite figure out why you would do that or why you would say that or why you would love them or whatever it might be, is meant to induce in them a question to you. In the meanwhile, you've been saying, Lord, this is rough. I'm feeling the weight of being reviled, being rejected. Help me to honor you as Lord, my Christ. And that person comes to you and says, what's up with this, Noah? Why are you building like this? What are you doing with this? And you can, with gentleness and respect, tell them, there's judgment coming. And there's a Savior who has come. Salvation is offered to you. How does that good look? I'll let you explore that with the Lord yourself. We all have different life contexts where you can think and pray and ask, God, how can I do good in such a way? And beyond that, also asking God, are there some radical ways that you want me to be good that are gentle and respectful but are Christ-honoring that he might put into your mind and into your heart to obey him in? If you would close your eyes, I'm going to read a song as our closing prayer before we sing a couple of songs. This is a song by John Van Dusen called None Other. I'll pray it. Lord, I want to know what makes you smile. I want to know what makes you weep. I want to walk the bloody mile and worship at your feet. Because I can't think of anything better than losing my life for you. I can't think of anything sweeter than shedding my blood for you. So whom shall I fear? Whom shall I seek? None other than you, my king. None other than you, my king. Your love is so strong, your grace so deep. I need none other than you, my king. None other than you, my king, Jesus. I want to be consumed by you, O Lord. I desire your holy fire. I want to help you carry that cross and sing to you in freedom. Because I can't think of anything better than losing my life for you. I can't think of anything sweeter than shedding my blood for you. So whom shall I fear? Whom shall I seek? None other than you, my King, 
Your love is so strong, your grace so deep. I need none other than you, my king. None other than you, my king, my Jesus. 